Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today I chat with Renee Engel, an old friend of mine from before my U of A days. Renee and I taught high school together at a charter school in South Tucson. Renee was an English language arts teacher and I was a science and math teacher. We had rooms across from each other and we would often find ourselves decompressing at the end of the day, sharing stories about what happened during the day and our adventures as high school teachers. Renee is not only a wonderful teacher, but she's also a writer, uh, a poet, and she's published a book called Woo Woo that we will talk about today. Welcome, Renee. Thank you. I'm, I'm so, happy to be here. So happy to have you. It oh, feels thanks. a little bit like a blast from the past. I know. Because we used to see each other every day, and then we went many years and didn't see each other at all, mm-hmm. and then happened to bump into each other here on mm-hmm. U of A campus, and I discovered that um, you used to be at the Poetry Center, and now you are a program coordinator in the Department of Entomology. Mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Entomology and insect science. Insect yeah. science, yes. Um, and you're not an entomologist, but you enjoy working there. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. much. <laughs> yeah. It's really nice change to be around scientists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's good, because we'll yeah. talk a little bit about science yeah. today, because mm-hmm. I want to get your perspective. But yeah. um, the reason I asked you to be on the show, or one of the reasons, is because um, you are a writer, and I think you're a beautiful writer. Um, I read your book, and I was just so taken aback by the writing. Um, And I'm aspiring to have a book published, so that's something we share in common. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about that, but I want to go back a little bit because I don't know very much about your background and how you came to be a writer. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your your story, where you came from, your childhood, when you discovered writing, and how that fits into you and who you are today. Okay, great. Thank you. Where did you grow up? Let's start with that. Um, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. My my mom was an artist, mm-hmm. um, a welder, a businesswoman, and my dad was a... He went to medical school, and he taught anatomy and physiology for a really long time, and then, um, you know, worked in the healthcare industry. So... Um, that was my parents, and I grew up in, um, yeah, I grew up in Phoenix early on. My parents had me when I was really young, when they were really young. Oh, yeah. So um, I grew up in this, my mom was 19, 19 when she okay. had me. Yeah. Which at the time I don't think was as a big a video as right. maybe it is now. My mom was 19 when she married my dad, but they yeah. didn't have me for a few years after that, but still yeah. young. It's young. Yeah. I think about myself at 19. I couldn't. No way. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, they were super young and they didn't have any money. They hadn't graduated from college or anything. And so I lived with my grandparents and my great-grandparents in this big house. Um, Oh, wow. So I was living with my parents, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents in this big intergenerational house. And it was really, um, it was kind of a dreamy place to to be, um, like, a... a young kid. Were you the only child there in the house? No, I had a sister, and she was there too. And um, and so that's kind of where my parents were while they while my dad was finishing up his schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, we moved to Guadalajara, Mexico, and lived there for uh, three years while he went to the Autonoma there oh, wow. for medical school. Mm-hmm. So um, how old were you we did when that. you were there? I was. Um, it was like. I want to say it was like second through fifth grade. Oh wow! Yeah, so um, so that's how I learned to speak Spanish mm-hmm. really 
my Spanish is not very good anymore, but <laughs> that's how I spe- learned to speak Spanish, yeah. and it was a great, like, cultural experience. Sure, um, sure. Learning about how the rest, a different part of the world works. I, I think about that all the time. Like, I wish that my children and I and my husband could just live in another country for a while so that mm-hmm. the kids could see something besides America. Yeah, it yeah. was it was a pretty formative experience for me to have that happen. Yeah. So... So yeah, that that was it. I, I mean, I was raised LDS. I was raised Mormon, and um, that's I bring that up just because it's such a central part of the book that I wrote. Yes, right. Um, so um, your parents were practicing. Yeah, and you my as parents well. were practicing, yeah. and so was I. And then um, and then when I got to be about eleven or twelve, um, my parents divorced. Um, and they said, we're not going to go to church anymore. Oh, we wow. don't believe in it anymore. Oh, wow. And so it sort of set off this. And then I was like entering adolescence at the same time too, yeah. right? So yeah, it set yeah. off this kind of existential crisis for myself sure. at a really early age. I think it had a, a little bit before like most, maybe most people have to confront their belief sure. systems. Well, you're young. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> how do you even know at that age what your belief system really is? All you right. know is what your parents have taught you. Right. And now and they're saying, they say, by the way, mm-hmm. we don't believe that anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, they, yeah. That so was... you another interesting thing about this to me is that you had both the artistic side with your mom mm-hmm. and you had the scientist side mm-hmm. with your dad. So you... It wasn't like you were raised, I mean, you're, you're in a religious household, which we, we tend to think of religion and science sometimes as clashing, and yet mm-hmm. you had a father who was steeped in science, being a physiologist and mm-hmm. in the healthcare industry, but also mm-hmm. a practicing Mormon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a really interesting thing to be growing up with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then a mom definitely. who's creative, so you must get a lot of your creativity from your mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think from both of them. Really? I think, yeah, I do. I think from both of them. I mean, I my dad just didn't maybe practice as formally. I think of science as such a creative thing, too, which is maybe a dangerous thing to say. No, I agree. But I do really think that there's a creative aspect of when I'm watching, like, the scientists around me at, at the entomology and insect science department. It, it just seems to me to take a a big degree of creativity to problem solve and to right. ask questions and to absolutely seek answers. Absolutely. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in geology and my husband is as well. And we talk about this a lot because um, especially with you're telling stories about the earth millions, billions of years ago. And nobody was there to take a photograph or to draw a picture or to write it down. We are recreating based on evidence. It's not that we're making things up, so it's not fiction. But you do have to be creative about looking at the data you're collecting and saying, okay, how could this make sense? What is it that could have happened that would create the rocks that we see today or the features that we see? Um, And not everyone comes up with the same explanation. Mm -hmm. So there definitely has to be some creativity. And then, as you say, the next question you're going to ask, you need to be creative about how am I going to try to get to the answer? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that strikes me as that's the exact way, that's exactly how you read a poem too, right? Like you look at it and not everyone's going to arrive at the same conclusion. You have this evidence, you have these words. Right. And it's this transaction that happens between, right, the words on the page and the and the reader. Yeah. And there's a lot of inference and a lot of, um, you know, deduction that right. has to happen. Yeah. And so. I remember loving that about, um, so in high school I was always into English. That was my favorite stuff. I wasn't into science and math and I wanted to write. And I remember 
one of my favorite things in school was when the teachers would assign a poem or a book and then they would say, I want you to try to figure out what the writer means here, what they're trying to say. And a lot of my, you know, colleagues would, my fellow students would be like, oh gosh, you know, who knows? That person's dead. Why do we care what they were trying to say? And I would just get so into it, you know, what is it that they're trying to say? And it was so much fun to me to try to interpret what they meant Mm -hmm. with those words. And it was always fascinating how different students came up with different things and you'd go wow I never thought about it like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah do you have any yeah. examples so so let's talk about when you were young when mm-hmm. did you find yourself being drawn to poetry and or writing did you always know that that was something you wanted to do um probably not right away but uh, looking back I was kind of always writing um I remember my grandmother gave me a journal when I was eight which is kind of like the eight is like this big rite of passage for um kids in the Mormon faith um so I got this journal and she was like keep your family history and she like was a writer and she would write she kept notebooks and notebooks and she would show them to me oh wow she had a typewriter that I would type on and she would read me things that she had written and so that was a really like early inspiration but I think more than writing early on I was reading I was just reading everything Mm -hmm. um I remember I got kicked out of the um I got kicked out of the library once because I kept requesting um, too many microfish slides. Because <laughs> I was just loving to read the back issues of uh, National Geographic. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. So I just I think I maybe requested 20 magazines that day. And she was yeah. like, you can't have any more and you got to leave. And I was like, what? Oh, no. You were pushing them to their limits. <laughs> I mean, think about now that. Now they would just be like begging a kid to come in and, and read know. it all, right? I know. I can't tell you how many times I ask students these days, like, what do you read? What are you into? And they're just like, I don't read for fun. And I was like you as a kid. I mean, I would get up on the weekends and just lay in bed for hours and read like an entire book. And my mom would be knocking at the door going, when are you getting up? And I'd be like, mm-hmm. I'm reading. Mm-hmm. You know, what a wonderful problem to have with your child. <laughs> Yeah. And we wish that for our kids, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So I was, like, just reading everything. I mean, I had – I can even still think back to that library and think about, like, the whole sections that I would read and go through. And actually, I really, for a long time, thought that I would do other things besides writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wasn't, like, paying attention to what I was doing on a daily basis. Yeah. So I thought, oh, for a while I was, like – for a while, I was really into entomology, actually. So yeah. it's kind of funny that I work in that uh, department now. But yeah. um, uh, and then um, marine biology; those were two things. Then you know, I was really interested in science, and kind of my dad was encouraging me in that direction. And then, but I was also a musician, and I was spending all day reading and practicing and what did you writing. Play? And so. It just didn't, there was a little bit of incongruity between how I was spending my time and what I was thinking, yeah. right? What were you practicing? What did you play? I played oboe, and I actually went, um, I actually went, did, did my undergrad um, on a music scholarship. Oh, wow. That's how I put myself through school. Where was that? At NAU, okay. Northern Arizona yeah. University. Yeah. So I, and I, like, I think towards the end of, like, when I was in high school, I was a little bit older, and I kind of figured out, okay, I'm going to be a music musician sure so I went to NAU and then the idea was that I would like get this four-year degree and then go to a conservatory or something sure try to get into an orchestra sure um but then I took a poetry class and it was just like you know I I was all over like I fell in love and I was like this is what I have to do yeah and um 
that was it. So you and I have the exact same story but flipped <laughs> because I was going to be a writer, going to be a writer, journalist, creative writing, all that stuff, and um, you know, went to college, uh, Syracuse University, gung-ho to get into the Newhouse School of Public Communications. I was going to be a reporter and write books on the side. You know, that was it. And then I took a geology class. <laughs> and just like you, it was like a love affair started, and I, I never would have expected it. Unlike you, I wasn't even dabbling in that at all. You know, it mm-hmm. just came out of left field, and I was like, this is so cool. I have to do this. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you had a similar sort of mm-hmm. awakening where you found yourself feeling passionate about something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It spoke to you in a way that the music wasn't anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and then I made a lot of dumb choices. Like, I, you know, I could have – I was halfway through a, a major in music. I could have finished that, mm-hmm. like, very easily. Sure. And um, had that and actually used that in my writing or, or done music criticism or any, you sure. know, anything like that. But instead I just, like, I sold my horn. I just, like, really divorced myself – from the music and just was like, no, I'm a poet. But yeah. Now, you know, looking back, I'm like, why was I so, you know. <laughs> so you actually don't think that that was a good decision? No, I mean, I wish I would have, yeah, I guess I wish I would have finished because I think I could have, I think I could have done like some music, music writing, music reporting, music kind of um, reviewing. Yeah. That maybe would have been helpful or at least just like maybe give, giving me a broader uh, a broader place to work from okay yeah but yeah. I was pretty like I'm never gonna do this again and now I'm older and I'm like I, th- I think I want to buy an Olu <laughs> like I right. think I want to like I feel you know like yeah. I think I want to go you know I'm gonna start playing like yeah. I think I'm gonna do so it just seems silly to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, but I, I did doing. the same thing, and I've explored this a little bit in my own psyche. Like, why did I do that? And I feel like for me, well, it coincided with a big life event, which was the death of my father. And so it was almost like maybe I'm divorcing myself from all that stuff because that's tied to that part of my life that I no longer have anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, and plus with science, it's really hard. Like, if I want to do geology, I have to get a geology degree. There's no other way to do it. And science is one of those things that if you're going to pursue it and do research, you really have to throw yourself in 100%, which I imagine it's like that with music, too. You're oh, practicing yeah. all the time. and mm-hmm. you're. Um, but it's funny you say that because I played clarinet as, as a young person. And now mm-hmm. as an adult, I'm thinking, gosh, I wish I hadn't given that up. I want to go back mm-hmm. and play again. I miss mm-hmm. music in my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you have a little bit of that, too. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I want to ask you about when your parents divorced. Did mm-hmm. you stay in that big house with your extended family, or did things change? No, yeah, things changed. I mean, my dad, he graduated from medical school. Everybody got real jobs. Um, and so, I, you know, when I talked to my mom about that time, it's not as, like, nostalgic or um, it's not as a happy time in her life sure. as it was for me. Sure. Just because she was living with her parents. and Oh, wow. You yeah. know, who maybe wants to live with their parents when as wonderful as they were sure. right like she she wanted to be on her own taking care of herself but yeah um so yeah so things changed and we you know we were living in a in a house by that point on our own when yeah. they decided to divorce and then um I forget what the rest of your question was I just wondered did like did you stay with your mom did you split yeah, time I with, yeah I stayed with my mom and it was like back then it was like every other weekend and one day a month or one day a week with your dad 
with my dad. Yeah. Um, but he lived in South Phoenix. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and he, he moved in with my great-grandmother. And so um, she became kind of like a – I mean, she already kind of was because, you know, she was always sure. there. But so she was kind of like my mom when I wasn't with, with my your mom. mom. Yeah. So that was cool, like, to have um, that close relationships with um, women that were, like, two generations from yes. me. Right. Um that was kind of, you know, as painful as it was to to have that happen. I think I'm really grateful to have had that those relationships. Sure. Yeah, you had a lot of women. You were surrounded. I mean, you had a sister. How old mm-hmm. compared to you is your sister? She's two years younger than me. Younger. So you had a younger so, sister. Mm-hmm. You had your mom, mm-hmm. grandmothers, and great-grandmothers mm-hmm. all around you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it was very... For all the patriarchy of Mormonism, it really was a maternal, a maternally focused, a matriarchy really is for you, for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And were all of those women practicing Mormons, your whole family? My great grandmothers weren't. Really? Um, Yeah. And that was interesting. And no one gave them a hard time about it, which looking back, I just, you know, because if you weren't, you, everyone gave you a hard time about it. Really? But for them, it was like they were the exception to the rule, you know, because they were these the elder stateswomen yeah, of sure. the family, and they could do what they wanted. Yeah. So um, they weren't, and they, and I think I probably really appreciated that about them, even though at the time I just it didn't even come up or yeah. I didn't, it wasn't something anybody ever talked about. Do you remember when you were young and practicing, did you, even from a young age, did you feel like you didn't want to be practicing, or did you enjoy being a part of that when you were young? I think it was a scary kind of experience for me in some ways. I, I rem- and I remember very early on being like, oh, I don't believe in God. Mm. But, you know, when you turn eight, you have this interview with the bishop of the church. You get baptized, and you have this interview with the bishop of the church, and it's like, or this is how I experienced it. Yeah. Um, and they call you in the office, and they ask you all these questions, one of which is, do you believe in God? And I would just remember sitting in that interview being like, yes. And I was like a line doing yeah, it. Yeah. Um, That's and knowing scary that, at like eight. at eight, yeah. that like these are the lies I have to tell to be, to be a member, not just of this community, but also of my family. Um, right. Because I didn't know at that time that my parents had doubts um, or that were, which my mom says she always did. And, really? But it just took her, you know, that long to, to kind of come to it. But she was raised that way too from a young age. Oh yeah. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was ingrained in her, her Mm -hmm. whole life. And your dad as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my great, great grandparents were, um, my great, great grandparents were pioneers who helped to settle Northern Arizona as Mormon missionaries. Like at the, uh, kind of at the turn of the century. So my family has been in Arizona for, five generations. Wow. And they helped to build temples and right. to create a Mormon culture here. Yeah. So it was a really big deal for anyone to go against that. Yeah. And that was part of why I think it was hard for my mom to leave. Sure. And since then, like, are your parents, do they still, they're still not involved? Oh, yeah. no, they're, they're done. Yep. They were done. Mm-hmm. And you as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Done. But I think what it 
like when they were like, well, we don't believe in this anymore, it was it was almost like, well, what then the question was, well, what do I believe? Do I believe this? And do I keep going with this? Right. Or do I go with them? Yeah. And I mean, they were giving me this huge gift, right? This gift to choose. Sure. On one hand. And on the other hand, it was like a little bit too much too soon. Well, Um, yeah. You said you were like 12 when they, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that's that's not a great, Mm -hmm. like you said, I mean, you're going through adolescence, puberty's kicking in, things are happening at school. Now your parents are separating, mm-hmm. and they're putting this huge decision in your lap about your belief, which is, I mean, for a lot of 12-year-olds, they don't even understand what, what does that mean. Right. And it strikes me when you say at age eight, you're sitting with a bishop, and they're asking you all these questions. How does an eight-year-old even know? Well, they, I mean, they get you ready for that. Like, they, right. there's all these classes and stuff that you do, um, like it, you do in many religions. Right. Um, it's, but, I mean, how do, do how can any religion expect any 8-year-old to really know if they right. believe in God? I mean, yes, yeah. you can prep a kid to say anything, to go through any sort of motions, right? I mean, it's just like I grew up Catholic, and, you know, you're like 6 or 7 years old. You have your first communion, and you wear this white dress, and you walk down the aisle, and they give you... You know, you have your take your first Eucharist and you say all these words and hold your hands a certain way. Any kid can be trained to do that. But if you had asked me at age six or seven or eight mm-hmm. what I believed, it would be easy to rattle off the words, I believe in God or I believe mm-hmm. in Jesus. But mm-hmm. I don't think I had any concept of what that <laughs> meant. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right? So to mm-hmm. me, it just strikes me that this is what we are doing in organized religion with children is asking them to really proclaim faith Mm -hmm. at such a young age. And I'm not sure that any child has the capacity to really know what faith is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I also think, like, I also have this experience now. My husband is Jewish, and, um, you know, we have two kids. I would say that we keep a Jewish home Mm -hmm. and that um, my kids are Jewish, we have Shabbat every week. Mm-hmm. We do all the high holidays. We don't go to temp- temple all the time. Right. Um, we're not Orthodox. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things about our practice that's probably super secular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really glad that it's strange. I'm glad that we're doing that for them, sure. not because I want them to believe in God or that I want them to believe anything, but I think it's really important to know where you come from. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I feel like that's what we're giving them when doing these rituals or or even just like a way to, um, you know, Shabbat for us, it's a lot about we turn our screens off for 24 yeah. hours. We don't do any, you know, it's just like connecting, family time. Yeah. So it's about like like making these habits for self-care. It's, you know. Right. So that's what it's about more than, I, you know, I don't care really what they end up believing. Sure. So it's funny how I've become an adult and been like, oh, I can see how this these rituals uh, could be useful in our sure. life. I hear that a lot, too, from parents. I've talked with other parents who raise their kids in one mm-hmm. religion or another, and often they'll say, well, we really like the value system it brings to the kids, and it's it's very, you know, it's steeped in this in this faith, you know, quote-unquote mm-hmm. faith, but it's, it's all about treating others, you know, right. with kindness, and, you know, mm-hmm. you don't do this and you don't do that. And you know, in theory, that sounds wonderful. I I grew up Catholic, and I don't think in Catholicism that's really where it often comes from, at least when I was a kid. I think it's mm-hmm. changing for some people. Mm-hmm. But it was much more about fear 
and mm-hmm. guilt and oh um, yeah totally right mm-hmm. and that was that is the part that I just I can't get past with children mm-hmm. and also that that there are so many people who today proclaim to be these wonderful religious you know Christians or whatever they proclaim themselves to be and yet they're the worst perpetrators of hatred right um, often not all of them I mean many many people who do practice I think really do believe those things mm-hmm. and, and take them to heart but there's a there is a you know, there, it doesn't just because you're religious doesn't mean that you're really coming from a pure place with those 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 values that are the good part of it. Right. I totally agree, and I think religion, organized religion, is you know has to take responsibility for the oppression of a lot of different kind of people, women, mm-hmm. LGBTQ. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of misogyny, patriarchy, mm-hmm. um, and racism that is and colonizing that is built into these things and so that actually was part of um part of what I was trying to reckon with when I wrote woo yeah so yeah which I do want to talk about yeah um I want just for people who are listening who don't know you said you mentioned LDS which is mm-hmm. is that Latter-day Saints yeah. is that what that means mm-hmm. so is there something different about that from is there are there other versions of Mormonism that are different from LDS? Oh, yeah. What is it that makes LDS LDS? Oh, well, I mean, I guess there are there are different um, there are different versions of it. Just like there's different versions of Judaism mm-hmm. and probably Catholicism or whatever Christianity for sure. So there's a fundamentalism that is what gets you know some attention in the press right um you think about polygamy and things like that so there are some people who are who still practice that and who still um whose beliefs still really revolve around the set of um i guess prophecies that joseph smith made about that Mm -hmm. um and then there's like the mainstream mormon church Mm -hmm. lds church that has actually really distanced itself from joseph smith of late yeah and um and in a lot of ways looks like any other mainstream christian denomination in america mm-hmm. um yeah whereas although its early origins really came out of this place um that felt or feels, you know, more cultish or, um, oh, I don't know, maybe a little bit imaginative or strange or um, supernatural. Sure. Yeah. Um, But I I think the mainstream Mormonism is is really, um, it it looks a lot like other Christian denominations. Sure. Of course, there's differences, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you say that we're cultish, but for those of us who didn't grow up Mormon, a lot of what you do see in the press or when you see things, you that's where your brain can go very mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I broke from Catholicism when I was about 17. I remember being a senior in high school, and I had gotten really into it as a teenager because I had skipped – I in middle school, I decided I want nothing to do with it, and I begged my parents, please let me stop going to religious ed, and I did. They did, and I stopped going to church. And then in high school, I was kind of regretting that I had never gotten confirmed in the Catholic Church, which is something um, that I decided I wanted to go back and do. So I got really involved. I went into my youth group, and I, you know, a lot of my friends were in my church youth group, and it was the same church my parents had gotten married at, and I had been baptized at, and all that stuff. So I, I kind of found myself in a in a social circle that was 
in this group. And so I was back into it, got confirmed, all of it. And then I just remember my senior year um, going to church one day and they brought a TV out onto the altar during mass and started playing this video about tithing. You know, you must tithe whatever it was, 10% or 30% of your salary to the church. And I was done. Like in that moment, I had this realization that it's not just other religions. It's my religion too that is basically a cult. And I started to feel like all religions, organized religions, were Mm -hmm. cult-like in that sense and that you have to buy in Mm -hmm. to these things. You can't just believe in God. Mm -hmm. You can't just be a good person and believe in the Mm -hmm. rules. You you Mm -hmm. have to buy into all this other nonsense that has been created to sustain the religion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that just, it freaked me out. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling very turned off by that. And I walked away from that church and I never went back until my father passed away and I had his funeral there. But I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't rectify that. Like seriously, you're Mm -hmm. bringing a TV on. This is supposed to be a time of worship. It's supposed to be (laughs) solemn. We're supposed to be, you know, serious and thinking about our beliefs and our faith. And now we're watching a video, a VCR video about our salaries. And there are people here who are poor. They can't afford to give you 10 or 20 or 30% of their salary, and yet you're telling them that's what they have to do to be a part of this church. Money and power. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you see that with, is it the same way in Mormon? Do yeah, they, 10%. Yeah. 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 They Tithing. Tithing is a huge deal. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of religion and money just freaks me out. Mm-hmm. Because really, is that what it's about? I mean, I understand you know, if you're going to build churches and you're going to, you know, make sure the roof doesn't leak and you're going to have these things, like there's a monetary aspect to that. But it's the piece about tithing is like you really are just, you're, you're giving away a portion of what you earn every, like every month without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that scares me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think what scares Yeah, I agree. I also feel like hierarchical structures that take care of that money are of concern to me, too. Mm. And so, I don't know. I think, and hierarchical structures are everywhere, right? They're here in the university community. Sure. And they're they're on one hand, maybe how you get things done. Mm -hmm. But on another hand, how um, it prevents access. Right. For a lot of people. Yeah. So I think I'm interested in flattening that and looking at ways and models of how flattening that hierarchy can yeah. create social communities that maybe function in healthier ways. I don't know. Sure. And you mentioned um, in, in the LDS church and a lot of churches, it really is a patriarchy. It's mm-hmm. a patriarchal system, so oh, that yeah. that structure you're talking about, the hierarchy, everyone at the top is male. Oh, yep. Right? <laughs> yeah, and that's true. I have to say that's true in a lot of churches. Women are making great strides there, and I hope that they continue to, but, um, you know, women don't have power a lot of times in those um Right. In those institutions, and at least in Mormon history, that wasn't always the case. In very early Mormon history, women were a lot more involved in um, prophecy mm-hmm. and in like the church creation of um, leadership and things like that. And slowly over time, um, they were kind of pushed out and 
you know, as the church mainstreamed more, right? Yeah. As it became legal, right? It was, you know, it, it, polygamy was illegal, and that's part of why they were moving west is, oh. you know, and for a long time Utah wasn't part of the United States. In order to become a state, they had to make polygamy illegal. Oh, wow. So, um, so as those things happened, mm-hmm. the role that women took on became different. Yeah. But, I mean, it was also, I don't know. Also, I can't discount, like, the power and the role that they did play as, like, household managers. And, you know, like, my in my experience, mainstream Mormonism, like, it really was all about the women. Really? And that's kind of how my world revolved. And maybe that's because they were caring for the young. But I also, you know, it, it was all about the women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's transition and talk about the book because mm-hmm. a lot of these themes come out in the book. Yeah. Um, the book is called Woo-Oo. That's how you pronounce it? Woo. Woo. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's interesting, though. The way it's spelled is capital W. Mm-hmm. small o and then is that a big o or a zero mm-hmm. at the end it's a of the big, big o. o okay yeah. but it's pronounced woo so i want uh-huh. you to tell us what that title means because right. you've told me and i've read about it and uh-huh. not, it's a little obscure to someone yeah. who wouldn't who isn't in that you know didn't grow up in that right. faith doesn't know anything about it what that actually means. it's not actually a mormon term it's a german music catalog oh, phrase right. yeah, called, yeah. um it, the direct translation is work on opusal okay which means work without opus number and that's what like musicologists um when they find fragments of composers music that have passed away um they will number it and it so the, it's numbered woo one Something. woo two, oh, you know. Okay. So it's it's just a music catalog term, and it refers to fragment, and that's really what the book is. It's a fragment yeah. of. Um, I was playing with the idea of fragment. So it's a fragment of a trans. It's my translation of my creative translation of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So, um, and that kind of plays into some of the history, right? Joseph Smith, one of his first drafts. Um, was stolen or lost yeah and so he had to rewrite it Mm -hmm. Um, and he apparently was transcribing from fragments too at different points Mm -hmm. um, fragments of the plates that he found Um, although he did find one whole book too so but so fragment was there Mm -hmm. already that idea of fragments. Mm-hmm. And is there something to this idea that, I mean, there are, it strikes me that there are fragments of your childhood, your experience in the church that actually do still play into who you are today and were important parts of your life. And then there are probably fragments of it that are very, um, you know, you'd rather not maybe revisit or fragments that are particularly painful or were, or were uh, you know, caused you to question mm-hmm. and have doubts. And so I know for me, when I think about religion, there are still fragments of Catholicism that I miss and that I find very endearing and very comforting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I occasionally go to church with my mom when she's in town because she Mm -hmm. likes to go, and I find myself feeling an old familiarity and a comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there are other fragments of it that I absolutely can't get my head around and will never be able to reconcile with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So part of this was reckoning with a church history that's racist, misogynistic, uh, patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you 
how do you acknowledge that you're coming from you know this place of privilege as a colonizer essentially like I'm a descendant of colonizers who came in and um, helped to take this land from the people who had had it in memoriam right like Tohono O'odham Dene like all these different tribes that were here and had this land before us yeah um, so wanting to confront that yeah and to look at that and then to graph and to not like kind of what I did with my music career like to take what I could from it mm-hmm. and move it forward and push it forward and move it into a place that um, um, maybe um, took up the power from mm-hmm. men. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So the idea of fragments, I like that. And also, so I read the book recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said that, you know, I was blown away by the writing because I just think you're a beautiful writer. The way you use words. I don't know, you know, as someone who writes, I was reading it going, I, this would never, like, none of, nothing like this would ever even come into my brain. So <laughs> your brain functions in a very special way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, but for me, it was also very obscure because I don't have a lot of background in history. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot, there were a lot of things that I felt like referred to things mm-hmm. from the Book of Mormon or from, mm-hmm. you know, Mormonism that I was maybe missing. Mm-hmm. But as a scientist, one thing that I felt very strongly as I read through is there were several places where I felt even just in single sentences where there was this, a clash of the religion and the science. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was like, I wonder if she, is this what she's getting at here or not? So I wanted to ask you about yeah. that theme because I felt like it was maybe not a major theme, but it did come across yeah. to me in the book. No, it's very much there, I yeah. think. Um, so where I can say, like, the... So there was a lot of pseudoscience floating around um, when Joseph Smith was writing the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Like, if we go back to the... Um, I went back to the process of him writing it a little bit, and um, if we go back there, like, he was, he was um, coming into... Mormonism, or he was receiving these um, prophecies from God and from the angel Moroni during this time in American history that's um, sometimes referred to as the Second Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. And he was living in this area called the Burned Over District, mm-hmm. where there were a lot of, you know, the economy was in the dumpers, mm-hmm. infant mortality was high. Yeah. There were all these tent revivals going on with like uh, religions like, you know, Baptist, Methodist, but then also there were these other religions that were springing up too, um, like Seven Day Adventism, Jehovah's Witness, the Shakers, Mm -hmm. you know, a sect called like Onida that also practiced a form of polygamy. There was a lot of women doing like pagan things. There were seances. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, strange like pseudoscientific sideshows and lots of things going on but this is also the time where this is elizabeth caddy stanton and you know abolition and the women's rights movement is also getting started up during this time too and all this was happening in this area at the same time like it was like this big pressure cooker of um and so these tent revivals were really you know based on this romanticism and connecting with faith in this way that was like emotional and um, enthusiastic and supernatural Mm -hmm. and really rejecting skeptical rationality, right? Yeah. 
and that's you know that's I think where I think science kind of dwells mm -hmm. mostly that's but right. also like Charles Darwin was still alive he had already published Origin of Species so it yeah. wasn't like there wasn't good scientific information available right it was just that it was like this the social and cultural soup was mixing yeah. all this stuff up and yeah, people yeah. were really thinking about you know where where am I going to end up because the present circumstances were so crappy. Yeah. So um, I think if this book is advocating for anything, it's really thinking about how um, actually you can't have belief without skepticism. Right. You can't have belief or faith without that. And it's, you know, kind of advocating if it advocates for anything for embracing both of those kind of realms, this romanticism and the skeptical rationality. Yeah. I think when one confronts things that that put, you know, everything you understand about the world in into question for yourself. Yeah. Um, I think when you start to confront those things, um, that's that's really where belief can live, mm -hmm. and also where. Um, Rationale—that's uh, also where humility is located, too. Yeah. I think. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah. so I don't know. I, I just I think that you can't have belief without skepticism, and um, I think maybe that's what you were picking up. That's some yeah. of the background of all that. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. I feel like um, I've had this conversation with many people where it's like, well, you either are a scientist or you have faith, and I don't think that that's true. Um, even though I'm, I'm not practicing in any religion, I have no problem with scientists who are religious and who have faith because um, I, I think of faith and belief as something, like you said, it's romanticized, but it's it also it brings, for some people, much-needed community. Um, a lot of people are drawn to things like this because of the group of people that they want to immerse themselves with, and they feel very welcomed, and, and it's you know people that they relate to. And also, like for me personally, it brought a lot of comfort when my father passed away, and you know I had grown up going to church with him, and I thought, you know, here I am having a funeral for him in this church that was a big part of my life, and it felt right. It felt like that was where it needed to happen, and I sort of gave myself over to this belief that he wasn't gone, right, that his soul was living on somewhere, and that was very comforting. Um, as a scientist, I can't say there's any evidence that that's true, but do I want to believe? <laughs> of course I want to believe that, you know, mm -hmm. his soul is going to live forever and that maybe someday I'll even see him again. You know, these mm -hmm. are things that people – really need, especially in dark times in their lives. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with any of that, but where the problem comes, and I think you hit on it when you said humility, is where we have, it and it happens a lot in this country today, where there is this, um, this idea that my religion is right, I know the truth, it's in the Bible, there's no other way, and if you don't believe those things, you are wrong, and you are a horrible person, and I can persecute you in some way. I can push you down, hold you down at a lower level because you're not, your belief doesn't match mine. And there, there's no humility in that. Mm -hmm. Like somehow you believe that you're better than other people because of what your belief is, even though those beliefs are unsubstantiated with evidence. Mm -hmm. It's okay to have unsubstantiated beliefs, but mm -hmm. then to 
push them out and say this is right and everything else is wrong is where you lose that piece of humility. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I think you gain it through some skepticism, even if it's not about science. What if it's that there are you know hundreds of other religions in the world, maybe thousands? Why is yours mm-hmm. the only one that has anything valuable to say? Mm-hmm. Or even just, do I really believe this? Do I? Is this really like? Do I really? I don't know. Just on a, I think just having to reckon with um, that a little bit. You have to. I think it. Skepticism, it's about having an open mind, right? It's about learning and growing. And so questioning yourself in addition to what's around you, I think you, you kind of have to start with yourself. I mean, that's a, sure. like kind of a cliche. No, it's true, though. <laughs> do you believe Point, this versus do you, were you just taught this and you're just sort of going through the motions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, what does it mean really for you as a human being? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder about that, too. (laughs) I think we should all do a lot more questioning of ourselves, not just about religion, but everything that we do. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, religion and science, they're, like you said, you started off by saying, you know, I tell stories about the earth before there were people here to tell them. Right. That's what we're doing with religion, too. It's just we're doing it in a different, we're using a different set of tools, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe acknowledging that, you know, that, okay, this is how we're building these stories here, and this is how we're building these stories here, and looking at um, the mechanisms of that, and just like appreciating that we need all kinds of stories. That's right. Because that's, you know, that's how human human people survive. Well, it's how it was the first way we taught each other. It's how we right. learned, right? It was right. storytelling. I'm still a huge advocate of storytelling and storytelling in the classroom. As a teacher, I just, I love to tell stories because I feel like this is how you, I relate to my students and it's how they, you know, can experience a little bit of the world that maybe they haven't before. Um, not just telling them facts, but, you know, by the way, this is how people have experienced the earth throughout time and here are some examples of things that we know and don't know. Um, I find fascinating and I think other people can relate to you better when you're telling a story versus just rattling off a bunch of facts. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And science and religion have been clashing since there were people. I mean, when you think about it, right, humans from the earliest time were coming up with stories to explain the unexplainable, which Mm -hmm. I would argue is part of what religion is, right? Mm -hmm. And then they also started making really robust observations about the natural world, which is Mm -hmm. what science is. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's all these stories about religion and science clashing through the ages. Yeah, yeah. But maybe they're both born out of, like, curiosity, That's right? That's right. So, and that keeping that, keeping that curiosity is important, and that's, I think, maybe where it can be hard to, in my experience of being a Mormon, it was hard to be curious about certain things because you had to, you had to shut yourself off in order to, um, you know, maintain the status quo or like to keep your family intact so um that's why it was a faith that ultimately couldn't work for me because I just couldn't you know to have to censor yourself in your own brain that just seems kind of a horrible way to live so you have to um so that curiosity like if we can just keep ourselves open to that right yeah that's yeah 
a good place to be. Yeah, it's one of the themes of this podcast, right? Is female <laughs> curiosity. And I feel like it's so important for all of us to stay curious, no matter what field you're in, no matter what your interests are. Um, that's really what keeps you keeps your brain engaged and thinking is staying curious. It's it, the minute that you lose that, like you say, and you just follow, mm-hmm. then you shut yourself off to growth, I think, completely as a human. Mm-hmm. You're just done growing. That's it. There's nothing else to learn if you're not curious. It's kind of done. <laughs> so I agree with you there. I wanted to finish by asking you about, are you still doing poetry? Are you still writing poetry yeah. these days? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so tell um, the listeners they can find your book, Woo, on mm-hmm. Amazon. Yep. And are you working on anything new that might come out at some point? Like, what are you working on these days? Yeah. Um, I'm working on a couple different proje- projects. Um, one is a more of a prose thing. It's a memoir about watching television with my children. Oh, yeah. It's more of like a lyric essay kind of kind of thing. And then I'm working on a collection of poetry um, that I, I guess that I'm calling my juvenilia, even though it's not juvenilia. Um, so it's poems that are um, kind of thinking about um, poems that are thinking about um, reading mm-hmm. and how um, literacy is changing. Oh. So they're riffing off things like Mother Goose, Dick and Jane primers, um, and I'm using things like, you know, argots, like children's languages like Pig Latin and things like that oh, wow. to um, to create poems that I hope are... Um, Thinking about literacy and gender in oh. a, a more expansive way. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And do you have you published poems in the past? Like, are there places where your people can find your poetry? Yeah, if you Google me, you can find, find it. Some, you can find some things. Um, yeah. So I let's see where would be a place. Uh, yeah, if you just Google me, you can. You have a website. I yeah. can put that in the notes mm-hmm. of the show yeah. so people can find you uh-huh. if they're interested. I yeah. was struck on your website by there's also other creative stuff that you do, yeah. not just writing, yeah. but you seem to be a very expressive, creative person in general. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do a lot of that with your kids? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think, are they the same way? Do you see like sparks know. of creativity in them? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. I mean, all kids, kids are like these yeah. little like plastic man or not plastic, these mayonnaise brains that just like do the most amazing yeah. things yeah yeah um yeah we they love to like make little books and actually my job at the poetry center was all about like how do you teach I taught a course on how do you teach kids to write poetry and to oh, read poetry wow. and to enjoy poetry right because there's this whole thing about poetry poetry is too hard I don't know how to read it right like, it's boring yeah so it was trying to work against those sure um, stereotypes about the genre yeah um or poetry isn't a way to make a living that's a theme with me that I often bring up with my guests because I remember um you know one of the reasons I sort of I thought journalism was the way to go even though I liked creative writing is I never thought that I could make a living as a writer mm-hmm. <laughs> like if I'm just going to write poems or books I'm never going to make a living that way and I think I was for some reason hyper focused on being able to support myself mm-hmm. and I hear that sometimes too like students today at the university especially they're very savvy about cost benefit analysis and so they think mm-hmm. a lot about what's the degree I'm going to get here at U of A and what's the job I'm going to get and what's the salary I'm going to get mm-hmm. and 
it makes me a little sad because I, I've been here 13 years and I think the proportion of students I have who are here out of genuine curiosity and just wanting to learn and being in love with the subject versus students who are here because they know the end game is to get that degree and get a good paying job, mm-hmm. I think it's shifted quite a bit towards the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you say poetry, like when you switched your major to poetry, I mean, there had to be a bit of fear there, or maybe there wasn't. I don't know. I'm curious. Well, I mean, I was a music major, so I would have, I mean, I probably would have made a little bit more as a oboist in an orchestra, but... You know, even musicians who play in orchestra, you know, there's it's not, not a lines. Job. Right. It's not a high-paying job, and a lot of them have day jobs or, you know, keep a studio or things like that. And the same goes for poetry. There aren't, you know, poets have day jobs, and they have for <laughs> for a long time. William Carlos Williams was a pediatrician, while Stevens was a lawyer. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, many today, many, many people teach that's a pop you know Marianne Moore was a librarian Mm -hmm. so it's always you know you've always had to kind of have a day job if you're going to be a poet unless you want to live in poverty with which many people chose to do too yeah and do choose to do but right um I yeah it's one of those professions yeah I I mean I don't know the students I was teaching I don't I felt like they had a lot of pressure certainly from their parents Mm -hmm. to have a plan and to know what they were going to go into and what kind of job and this kind of thing. And in the realm that I was working in, um, you know, an MFA, a BFA in creative writing, there is no end game. There is no job for that. It's a place where you make it up. And there's a lot of creativity in that and a lot of like, but there's also, it can be really scary and a lot, it can be frustrating and really hard. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all those things. Um, And so then it's it's hard because the students, if you love something like that and that's what you want to focus your studies on and there's no end game versus you do the business degree, there's an end game, but you write on the side, uh, something like that. And it's, I know that feeling of, you know, making a decision like that and just wanting to immerse myself 100% in what I loved doing. And the only way to do that was to declare that as a major. Mm-hmm. So my classes were about geology. Everything mm-hmm. I was doing was about geology. And you, mm-hmm. it would be hard to do that if you're getting oh, a yeah. different degree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a struggle. <laughs> but you're making it work. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's really hard. I think that's the hardest thing about being a writer and I think it's gotten harder I don't think it's as easy to make a living as a writer as it used to be too and that's a lot has to do with digital you know the way that um, the internet has changed Mm -hmm. um, publishing a lot right so that has consequences for writers it's also given in certain realms more opportunities but yeah it's going to keep changing, and it always yeah. will. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've learned that too with trying to publish. Is this, you know, do you go try to go traditional and get your book published? Has become a thousand times more difficult because it's not always anymore about just looking for the next creative or interesting or, or you know writer or book. It's about how many books are going to sell, mm-hmm. and so. Um, it's really, really hard if you can't pitch your book to the right person with the right idea at the right time and the right, you know, if it doesn't check all the boxes, even if someone enjoys the idea or the book or the writing, 
You know, mm -hmm. it's really hard to get someone to bite. And then, okay, so you can self-publish your book and then nobody sees it and it costs a lot of money. So if you mm -hmm. don't have the money to do it yourself, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a different, it's a really different world than it was just 20 years ago. He yeah, totally. really different. Um, but at the same time, you mentioned opportunity. You know, anybody who wants to write can find a place somewhere online where they can put their work. Right. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's both a good thing and a bad thing, I think. But, you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of crazy stuff out there. But, mm -hmm. um, well, I wish you the best with Thank your poetry you. and your you next too. book. I can't wait to read it. And we have to get together off yeah. mic to talk about publishing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like and I will keep listening. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for yeah. being a guest. It was yeah. great to catch up with yeah, you again. Yeah, you too. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Plucky Ladies Podcast is recorded in the studios of the Office of Digital Learning at the University of Arizona. Special thanks to the team for recording, sound editing, and photography. You can catch all episodes of Plucky Ladies on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on my website, jesscap.com. That's J-E-S-S-K-A-P-P.com, and click the tab labeled The Podcast. Send me a message with your Plucky story, and it might be featured on a future episode. Subscribe to Plucky Ladies Podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence.